Well, it's wonderful to be here today. Good to see each and every one of you. Appreciate the invitation to be here very much. Been been a while, so uh, it's good to see all of you. Lots of familiar faces out there, lots of new faces too. Uh, I want you guys to know that though we don't make it over here as often as, as maybe we would like to, we do think of you often and, and appreciate the work that's going on here. As I think back over the past 15, 15 years or so and things that have changed in this congregation, uh, y'all have truly done tremendous work in the, in the Lord's kingdom. And sometimes we get in our home congregations and we're plugging away and trying to do the best we can to, to make things grow and make things good and, and we can lose sight of the the big picture, everything going on in the kingdom. So it's good to get out and to see you all again, and we, we appreciate your work and appreciate your labor in the kingdom. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. I'm going to talk about something today that, that's uh, just one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, as I think back on my youth uh, and, and some of my earliest memories, I, I remember going to my grandparents' house, as I'm sure lots of kids do, and I was probably five or six years old, and and I would go and stay with my, my grandmother, Nelda, and uh, she would always be, be telling stories out of the Scriptures. That's just the way that she was. It's the way she is today. She's 93 years old, and that's still what's, what's on her mind, and that's a blessing to our family for sure. But my favorite story for her to, to tell was, was about the plagues of Egypt. And she just had an ability to recount that in a way that captivated my mind and, and got me excited and built my faith from a very, very early age. And that story continues to build my faith. Each and every time that I read about that and study about it from the Scriptures, it increases my faith. But a few years ago, I ran across an article from a guy named David Padfield, and, and uh, the way that he recounted this story kind of changed my view and my perspective of it and even increased my faith more and uh, began to get me to thinking about why did God choose these ten plagues? You know, God could have, could have brought the children of Israel out any way He desired to bring them out. He could have softened the heart of Pharaoh instead of hardening the heart of Pharaoh. He could have caused Pharaoh that when Moses and Aaron walked in there and said that, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, Pharaoh would have said, You bet. Take them out of here. They're nothing but a burden to me anyway. And that would have been the end of the story. We wouldn't have had to read any more about that. God could have done that. We have confidence that God could have done that. So why did God take these ten things and use each and every one of them to bring about the children of Israel? It was a lot harder process, it would seem to me, but God's ways are not our ways. And I want you to know, God didn't choose these plagues in a random kind of fashion. He had methodology behind it. He had reasoning for that. He wasn't just saying, let's see what works. Maybe turning the river into water will work. Maybe the frogs will work or the flies will work. Maybe that'll work. God wasn't doing that. That's not the way God operates. God is a God of purpose. He's a God that knows what's going on. And He had power to, to take the natural world and turn it upside down and do whatever He wanted to do with it. And He picked these things to do that. Let's kind of set the stage and let you just know where uh, the mind of the Pharaoh was as this began to, to take place and to go about. If you look in Exodus, uh, the fifth chapter, the first couple verses there, uh, the, the previous chapters in Exodus are just kind of setting the stage and leading us up to this, showing us a little bit about Moses and, and where Moses was coming from. But all that's happened now, and Moses and Aaron uh, are ready to go in. They, God has convinced them this is the thing to do. And they go in and they see the Pharaoh. 
And they say those famous words, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. We remember those words. But what did Pharaoh say? Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Pharaoh says, I don't know who this God you're talking about is, but I don't know Him. And I don't care what He says, because I have, you know, I'm in charge around here. Pharaoh thought he was the God. And he said, I'm in charge of Egypt. I'm in charge of these people. And I'm not going to let Israel go. They're serving me. They're serving a purpose. And I'm not going to let them go. If we look in the seventh chapter, in the fourth verse, I want you to notice what God says about that. He says, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, the land of Egypt, by great judgments. And listen to what he says next. He says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring forth the children of Israel from among you. He said they're going to know. Pharaoh doesn't know, but he's going to know. He's going to know who I am. He's going to know who the Lord is. He's going to know who the people of Israel are. He's going to recognize that. So who did Pharaoh know? Who did the Egyptians know? This is who they knew. And many, many more. They worshipped 1,500 plus different gods and deities, pretenders, false gods of Egypt. This is who they knew. So when Moses and Aaron go in and say, God says, let the people of Israel go, Pharaoh's thinking, no, no, they didn't. No gods didn't say that. These were the gods he served. And really in Egypt, there's a hierarchy of gods, and there's gods of different families, and there's a god for everything imaginable. They, they conjured up these gods in their minds. And you may be more familiar with the Greek mythology and the way that they worshipped all these different gods. The Egyptians were the same way. Worshipped all these different gods for different purposes and different things. And, and pretty much every task or every duty that you can think of, they assigned that to a god. They imagined them up in their mind and they drew them on a wall or a hieroglyph and they worshipped them. They bowed down to them. And Paul, when he talked to the folks uh, in the book of Acts, he said that we know that the Godhead's not like gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. But that's exactly what the Egyptians did. They drew these images out on cave walls and they worshipped them. Or they saw an animal and they said, that is the manifestation of our God and they worshipped that animal. And that's the society that they lived in. And that's what Pharaoh's thinking when... Moses and Aaron go into him and they desire to have the people of Israel let go and they tell him that God said that. He said, I don't know. I don't know. This is who I know right here. All right. Exodus 12 and verse 12. God says this, I'll pass through the land of Egypt this night. I will smite the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. God picked out these plagues to execute judgment against those pretenders. Against all those false gods, those pretenders of Egypt that Pharaoh bowed down to, that the people of Egypt bowed down to. God said, I'll execute judgment against them and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. They'll know that I am the one and true God. And so one by one, that's what God began to do against the gods of Egypt. He picked these plagues. 
And let's talk about that for just a while. Let's meet some of these pretenders and let's show how God executed judgment against them. So first, we have the God of Num. God of Num. He was the guardian of the Nile River. You know, the Nile River held a place of special significance for the Egyptians. Really, the Nile River is the region Egypt rose to power. If it had been somewhere else in the desert, they wouldn't have had the water, they wouldn't have had the fertile soil, they wouldn't have been able to plant the crops. And so they attributed that to the god Num, that he was the guardian of the Nile. Every year, the Nile would flood and it would bring with it all this sediment of, of fertile soil. It would water the, the crops that they had. They could save some of that water for irrigation later. And it was a tremendous blessing to them. It made them a rich and powerful society. And they attributed all that to Num. We also have the God of Happy. Happy was the spirit of the Nile River. All the life that was in the Nile, the vibrance of the Nile River, attributed to the God of Happy. And God was, uh, the, the goddess of Happy or God of Happy was manifested sometimes as a crocodile. And they would see the crocs swimming in the Nile and they would say, there's, there's Happy, the spirit of the Nile and all the life that's in the Nile. And then we have Osiris, and Osiris was one of, of Egypt's more powerful gods, if you want to call them that. And they attributed to him the god of the underworld. They believed that the Nile River was indeed the bloodstream of Osiris. And so I find it very interesting that God chooses this first plague directly against the Nile and says these gods of the Nile are not gods. They're nothing but pretenders. They're nothing but fakes and phonies. And God says to Moses and Aaron, or, or tells them what to do, and it says Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. All the rivers were turned to blood. All the water in Egypt was turned to blood. Where's the guardian of the Nile? And what about the spirit of all this life in the Nile? Look what it says. The fish that were in the water died and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And so he says, these gods that you think are protecting the Nile, they're nothing. They have no power. They, have no, they can't guard against me. They can't protect you against me. I'm going to execute judgment against them. And that's what he does in one fell swoop. He turns the waters of the Nile into blood, and he takes away all these gods' ability uh, to do anything against him. This is the goddess Haket, and you can probably see very quickly where we're going with this one. Haket was always depicted as having the head of a frog. She was the goddess of birth. She was supposedly married to the Creator God. So she was the wife of the Creator and the goddess of birth in Egyptian society. And they believed when they saw a frog, it was the manifestation of this goddess Haket. And in a normal year, when they would see an abundance of frogs coming from the Nile River, they would celebrate that. They would be happy about that. This is a blessing to them. They were going to receive abundance and blessing. And yet... I can only imagine what they begin to think when here come the frogs. And maybe at first they start to see frogs coming in after the Nile had turned to blood and they thought, here comes our champion, here comes our goddess, she's going to protect us. And the frogs kept coming. And the frogs kept piling up. It says that the Lord spake to Moses, saying to Aaron, stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams and the rivers and the ponds and cause frogs to come up 
on the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered, covered the land. They didn't just ten frogs come out here and croak around. They covered the land. And they came up onto the shoreline and covered the ground. And they came up into the bedchamber of Pharaoh and they covered the ground. And they could not take a step. They could not take a step unless they smashed the guts out of the goddess Haket in their mind. Just imagine that. Think about that. And now this goddess is piled up in heaps around the camp. Once this is all over, they just put them in piles. And they pile them up around the camp. And you have to sit there as an Egyptian and look at that and think, that, that's our goddess, piled up in heaps around the camp. Interestingly enough, on a side note, in Egyptian society... Uh, you could be punished with criminal charges for killing a frog because it was the goddess Haket. And yet they couldn't take a step without killing the goddess Haket. This is the god Geb. God, the god Geb was recognized as, uh, as the earth god and they celebrated him for the bounty of the soil. As I said, Egyptian soils were rich. They could grow great crops. They were very well equipped to grow crops very, very well. So they would naturally, in their polytheistic society, attribute that to a, to a god, that that was his job to make sure that there was bounty in the soil. And so what does God do uh, for that? Well, he selects the next plague. Exodus 8, verses 16 and 17, it says, The Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with the rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beasts, and all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land. Uh, the word lice there uh, was just some kind of burrowing insect, an insect that would burrow into the skin. Uh, but here's the bounty of the soil, not bringing forth great crops anymore, but bringing forth these terrible insects. Some believe it was mosquitoes or lice or ticks, or, but the bottom line is it was some kind of insect that would get on your skin and that would burrow into you. The priests of Egypt already had to shave their entire bodies to be free from this type of insect because they couldn't, worship, they couldn't offer worship if they were... Uh, unclean by reason of some kind of insect like this. And now God turns all the dust into these insects. They're all over the priest. No worship can be offered. Where's Geb? Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. This is Kipri. Uh, they recognize Kipri as the god of the morning sun, and he always is depicted as having this head of a beetle, a scarab beetle. And so scarab beetles are common in Egypt. They're a little beetle that flies around a little bit. And uh, Kipri always has the head of a scarab beetle. And so what does God do about that? In Exodus 8 and verse 24, it says, There came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and his servants' houses and in all the land of Egypt, and the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. The land was corrupted, destroyed, the land was just taken over by this swarm. And this swarm of flies, if you, uh, if you look at the Greek and the interpretation of that, it's all kinds of different flying insects. Scarab beetles included that. Young's literal translation translates it as beetle. And so these were flying beetles, flying insects that came in and swarmed the land. 
And God's just taking their false gods, their pretenders, and He's plaguing them with it. He takes Haked and He plagues them with the frogs. He takes uh, Kipri and these beetles and He plagues them with that. And He's just showing them these gods are not really gods. I can take and I can do whatever I want whenever I want with these animals. As we continue to look on to the next plague, this is the goddess Hathor. Hathor was uh, always depicted, or, or they believed that the manifestation of Hathor was the cow. And so when they would look out in the fields and see the cows, uh, they believed that they were seeing Hathor there. She was the goddess of the desert, and they believed that cows were her manifestation. The Apis bull is an interesting thing in Egyptian uh, society. They would take and find this bull, the best of the land of Egypt, and they had his special place, his special pen, and they would take him and put him in that pen, and they would worship him, and they believed that he gave them power, gave the priests power of prophecy. So they would make some show or some scene, and they believed the bull's reaction to that would give them a glimpse into the future. So this bull had a very, very special uh, meaning to them. When the bull would die of natural causes, they had a uh, mechanism where they would go throughout all the land of Egypt and they would find the perfect new specimen, the perfect new bull, and they would pick out that new Apis bull, bring him into his place and have a ceremony and celebrate that. So I think it's interesting that the next plague in Exodus 9, uh, verses 3 through 6, is the disease of the livestock. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, and upon the horses, and upon the donkeys, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep. There should be a very grievous moraine or a disease. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of the land of uh, Egypt, the cattle of Israel, and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall nothing die uh, that is the children of Israel. So God begins to be selective in the way that He puts these plagues into place. Israel's cattle are fine, Egypt's cattle uh, die. Why is that significant when we think about the cows of Hathor and the Apis bull? Well, the Apis bull dies, and they can't go pick out another bull. There's not another bull to find. All the cattle in Egypt are dead. There's not another bull. Where do they got to go? They got to march themselves over to the children of Israel and pick out one of the bulls of the slave people and use that bull as their new Apis bull. Much Less to say he's failed in his job of protecting them. They didn't see this coming. There was no prophecy of the Apis bull to tell them that this was about to happen. And so again, God's just one by one picking off their gods and showing himself superior in every way, uh, in every form. The next plague, uh, or the next thing we see is this set of gods that pertain to medicine. So... There, Egypt was unbelievably advanced in the ways of medicine for the time. There's even uh, instances where they can find mummies that had uh, brain surgery performed on them. And so Egypt was very advanced. They had great ability in medicine, which made them, a, a, again, a very wealthy and prosperous nation. And uh, Imhotep was, uh, was an actual individual who... Uh, gave them a lot of advancements in the field of medicine, and so they just turned him into a god. They thought, this guy's so great, we'll make him a god. And so he was the god uh, of medical knowledge. Toth was the god of medical learning. Uh, and then we have uh, Isis, who uh, is the god of love, magic, and medicine, and Sekhmet, who is the goddess 
of epidemics and healing. And so you can begin to see how many gods for how many things they had. But these four gods in particular relate to medicine, to healing, to, to uh, all those kinds of things. And so God sends forth a, a simple boil. And He tells Moses to sprinkle the ash up towards the heavens. And as He sprinkles that ash up and it begins to settle back down, bulls begin to break out on the, on the hands, on the face, on the body of every man, woman, and child in Egypt. And it says it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man. These were very uncomfortable But this was not something that the Egyptians shouldn't have been able to handle. They're advanced in medicine. They've got Emetep. They've got Toth. They've got Isis. They've got these gods and goddesses that should help them solve this problem. They can do brain surgery, for crying out loud. They can do all these things, and they can't do anything with these boils. And it just begins to get worse and worse and worse. And God, again, shows Himself superior in every way, shape, and form. Now we have a a few gods that we want to look at that pertain to to crops. Uh, This being Newt. Newt is the uh, sky goddess that uh, should bring about fair weather and favorable weather for the crops. Uh, We have the god Dnieper here, who is the god of grain. Seth is the protector of crops in Egyptian uh, mythology. And then Renanutet was the cobra goddess of grain and crops. And so these four gods all pertain to bountiful crops and, and being able to produce these wonderful crops uh, that Egypt was known for. And so God sends two separate plagues, I believe, here to address these things. The first being the plague of the, of the locusts in Exodus 9, verses 22 to 24. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail, in the land of Egypt, uh, hell in the land of Egypt, upon man, upon beast, upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, ran upon the ground. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled in the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. I apologize, I got those out of order. That, the, the plague of the hail and the fire mingled with the hail. And so he rains, God rains that down. It says there's been nothing ever like that seen before or since in the history of mankind. We've got, you know, we can see serious thunderstorms here. Heavy rain and hail. But this has got fire in there. Ice and fire together, raining down upon the ground. Very grievous. Beat those crops into oblivion. And then it says, whatever was left, the locust came and tore up. He says, bring forth uh, that east wind. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And it says that they went in the land of Egypt, all the coasts. They were very, very grievous. And they so much so, the land was dark. And they ate everything up that the hail had left. And so there are no crops. Guardian of the crops, guardian of the the soil, all that, they don't stand a chance against God Almighty. Again and again and again, time after time after time, God is showing Himself superior. we got two plagues left. Adam is the God that they believed pushed the sun across the sky. He was the sun God and one of the creators in their society that they believed. Again, just another pretender, another figment of their imagination. 
but they subscribe to him great power. We've got uh, Ra, or Ray, as he's sometimes called, in Egypt, who was king of the gods, and uh, who also had a lot to do with light and, and sun and the, and the giving forth of light in the land of Egypt. Uh, we've got Horus, who was a sky god of Upper Egypt, and also had to do with uh, light. Uh, the goddess of Patal, who was the creator and uh, giver of all light. And then Shu, who was the wind god, and who should have protected against these, uh, these many, many different plagues that come against Egypt. And so what does God do for them? All these gods of light, and the sun, and the moon, and the giving of light... In Exodus 10 and verse 21, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thy hand toward heaven, that there shall be darkness over the land, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. They saw not one another, neither rose from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. This has always been one of the more amazing ones to me. That there's light over here in the houses of the children of Israel. But all the Egyptians are in this thick, thick darkness. So much so they feel like they can feel it. They can just feel the darkness weighing down on them. And they got to be running through their mind and through their head. Where is the gods of light? Where is the God that should be bringing out the moon at least? Much less the sun. Where are they at? And God lets them dwell on that for three days. He lets them dwell on that. And think about that. Their gods never come to save them. Never come to save them. Not at all. Not a single time. And then we have perhaps the most serious of all the plagues. And I want to notice just a few gods here. Meseknet was the goddess who protected children. And so this goddess should have protected all the children of Egypt. Uh, we have Circuit, who is the goddess and guardian of life, of all life, children and of, of adults. Uh, we have Montu, who was a symbol of the might and the vitality of Pharaoh. And then we have Anubis, who was the god of death and the god of mummification. And so we have these gods associated with protection of life. And then they had special ceremonies at death. The Egyptians were, were very selective in the way that they buried people and their, their mummification and preservation, uh, especially of their kings and of their pharaohs, is very, very impressive. Uh, when you look at it in that regard. Uh, and so Anubis was credited with that uh, and bringing them forth into the, to the afterlife. And so it's interesting that God puts this last plague on them. And Exodus 12, 12 said this plague was against all the gods, so it was across the board against all of them, but these in particular. And uh, the Lord said unto Moses in Exodus 11 and beginning in verse 1, Yet I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he will surely thrust you out altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. The firstborn of Pharaoh that sit upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and the firstborn of the beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there is none like it, 
nor shall be like it any more. But against all the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and between Israel. So God says to Moses, one more plague. We've done these nine plagues, one more plague. And it's against all the gods of Egypt. But the Egyptians had a protector of children. The Egyptians had a protector of life. The Egyptians had a special ceremony where they would mummify bodies and bury them in sacred uh, celebrations. And what happens? There's a cry that goes throughout the land of Egypt. And every house is touched. Every house is touched. Children die in every house. Firstborn die in every house. And there's no way to bury all the bodies and mummify all the bodies. And so they just throw them into pits. Because there's nothing else they can do. The ultimate execution of judgment against the Egyptians. Given by God Almighty. To show He is supreme in every way. To show that He is God of the Nile, that He is God of the animals, that He is God of the sky, that He is God of every single thing. He is God of life. He is God of death. He is God Almighty. That's the God we serve. That's the gods the Egyptians had to recognize. That's the God the Egyptians had to recognize exists. And they looked at their gods and they wanted protection. And they wanted salvation from their gods. And what did God Almighty do? One by one by one, He began to pick them off. And as they thought they had gods that would protect them, they didn't show up. And just as they thought maybe the next God will come along and help us, they didn't show up. And eventually, He gets down to their most powerful gods that are left, and they didn't show up. Why didn't they show up? Because they're not God. They're figments of the imagination. They weren't going to come help them. And we look at that story and we say, how foolish. How foolish were the Egyptians that they thought some figment of their imagination was going to show up. Because God Almighty created them just like He created us. And they conjured up these things in their minds and they painted them and they worshipped them. And you may say, you know, why why would they do that? Exodus 18 and 11 This is Moses' father-in-law makes this statement. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. He watched that and he saw that. And he said, I know that he's greater than all gods. Did they realize that? Did the Egyptians realize that? You know, Moses' father-in-law realized it. I can't read uh, Egyptian writing, but I'm told that this is the Ipwer Papyrus. And that written on the words of this papyrus are great lamentings and wailings about acts of God, singular. And when you read these papyruses in Egypt and you read the hieroglyphs on the cables, they don't talk about God in the singular. They talk about gods in the plural, always, always. And then you run across this and it said God did this. God did this. God Turned the river to blood. God caused the livestock to die. God stripped all the trees of their leaves. God caused fire to rain down from above. God caused that. The Egyptians knew. God said they're going to know. And guess what? They knew. 
They knew. This is another uh, artifact, the Amosi Stella. And it records the tremendous catastrophes in Egypt. It records a storm that had never been seen anything like that before. It records darkness enveloping the land of Egypt uh, for a time and them not being able to see anything at all. It records several of these things that we're told happened in the Bible. And it says, not the gods caused this. It says, God caused this. God in the singular. It's amazing. God did exactly what He said He would do. He executed judgment. He showed Himself supreme. He showed Himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you may be asking yourself, so what? We laugh at them. (laughs) We laugh at their foolishness that they would worship a frog. We laugh at their foolishness that they would pick out a bull and set him in a pen and think that bull's going to tell them what the future holds. It's foolish, isn't it? And you're probably sitting there thinking, I would never... Never do that. I would never think that there was some other God. I would never worship any other God. But in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14, we're told, flee from idolatry. Why would we be told to flee from idolatry? Now understand, he's writing to Corinth. They had some of those uh, false gods in their day too, and they would worship some false gods. But I think it applies to us today. You and I are told, flee from idolatry. The Egyptians were an idolatrous nation. The Greeks were an idolatrous nation. And you know what? We can fall into that same uh, sin today. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things, whose God is their belly. You know, we can fall into the, to the prey and to the sin of worshiping our own self-indulgence and taking to ourselves what is good for me. And I'm going to worship what's good for me and I'm going to do what's good for me. Have you heard that? That's pretty common in society today. We've been saying that or our society has been saying that for years and years and years. It's all about you. You do what feels good to you. You do you. That's sin. That's idolatry. That's just as bad as worshiping a frog. It's just as foolish as worshiping a frog to think that ourself, of our own self-indulgence, we're going to do whatever we want and there not be consequences He also said, who mind earthly things. There's a God of earthly things. All these things that are spread out in this world that we enjoy, that we like to do. If we're going to put those and elevate those things up above God Almighty, that's just like worshiping all those false gods of Egypt. It's no better. Romans chapter 1 and verse 25 says, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature. More than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The creature. There's a lot of creature worship in this nation today, in this world today. We worship the creature. We worship other people. We look at them and lust after them and and worship them and we'll sacrifice our morals and we'll sacrifice our values for some self-indulgence and some pleasure. And he said, you can't worship the creature more than the Creator. That's what the Egyptians did. They painted it on a wall and worshipped it. Don't fall victim into that. 
2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, it says, Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. When you put the love of pleasure above the love of God, that's sin, that's not just sin, that's idolatry. Just like worshiping those false gods of Egypt. The God of pleasure. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These things are idolatry. Fornication is idolatry. And this, this verse uses in the King James Version, obviously, some words we don't use every day. But fornication is sexual intercourse outside of marriage. He talks about their uncleanness. Uncleanness is impurity of lustful, luxurious living, of impure motives. Inordinate affection there is defined as a vile or a depraved passion, a passion or lusting after something that we should not be lusting after, a passion after something that we should not have passion after. Evil concupiscence, a desire for what is forbidden. God forbids certain things in His law. God forbids those things for a reason, not because He doesn't want you to enjoy certain things, but because He knows the consequences of those things. And He doesn't want His people to fall victim and pray to the consequences of those actions. And so He forbids it. And this idea of evil concupiscence is a desire for what is forbidden. And then covetousness, or a greedy desire for more than you have. Just wanting more than you have. And so we'll sit there and laugh at the Egyptians for worshiping a cow and a frog and, and believing that these uh, different gods would bring forth bounty from the soil and this and that. We'll say we'd never do that. But we'll worship a little green piece of paper with a number on it and some old president's face on it. We'll worship it. We'll sacrifice everything. People sacrifice their families. They sacrifice their friends. They'll cheat, they'll lie, they'll steal, whatever they can do. For these things that are written in this verse right here. And what does God say about them? He says they're idolatry. Put those things away. Put those things away. The God of uncleanness and of inordinate affection and of evil concupiscence and of covetousness. He says put those things away. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 27 it says, For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. There's everything else you could lump in there. Anything you're going to put above God, you can put into that last box there. And that's not a pyramid of Egyptian gods, but that's a pyramid of gods that we often will serve. And we'll say we won't serve those false gods, but all these things are things we can easily fall into and put above God Almighty, and every one of them is idolatry. Just as sure as what we've talked about all those Egyptians. So I want to read one more verse here. We already read that verse in Colossians 3 and verse 5. I want you to notice verse 6. He says these things, all these things are idolatry. And then I want you to notice verse 6. For which things sake cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what God says in Exodus 12, 12, against the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment? He says against these gods, I'll execute judgment. He's going to execute judgment against these gods. 
For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. When we're going to get involved in those things, He's going to execute judgment. Just as surely as He did. It may not be by some miraculous plague in this life. But that judgment is coming just as sure and it will be just as severe. Most likely much more severe. Because we're talking about eternity. We're talking about eternity. Get into those things. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. And so my question to you today is, not would you worship one of these gods of Egypt, but would you worship one of these other gods, the God of self-indulgence, your own belly, selfishness, Would you worship the God of pleasure? Would you worship the God of greediness? Would you worship the creature more than the Creator? Would you do those things? And if so, now's the time to change. Now's the time to reset your priorities. Now's the time to think about who you serve. Who you serve. Is God first in your life? Is God the reason that you're doing everything that you're doing in word or deed? Do all in the name of the Lord. Everything you do is in the name of the Lord. Every action you you partake in. Is it all to the glory of God? Are you putting some of these things before Him? Think about those things. There's one God in Ephesians 4 and verse 6. One God and one Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There's one God. He was above all those gods of Egypt. He showed it in impressive fashion. He let them know that He was God Almighty. And that same God is the God we serve today. It's the same God. And He'll execute judgment against our false gods if we're worshiping those false gods. These are the thoughts I have this morning. I appreciate appreciate your attention. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to stand before you. We're going to offer an invitation. uh, And that invitation gives you the opportunity to, to reflect for just a minute. You know, invitation song's not very long, a couple minutes long, but it gives you some time to reflect. It gives you some time to think. Use that opportunity. Use that opportunity to consider your ways, consider your life, consider where you have God in the list of priorities in your life. He deserves the number one spot. He deserves it. If we give it to Him now, it's a great blessing to us. We'll be blessed. We'll live happy lives. We'll, we, we may have trouble, I'm not saying that, but we'll have happiness because we'll be serving the mighty God. But if we don't give Him that place now, He'll take it. He'll take it someday. And our knees, we'll, we'll hit our knees. We'll bow to Him. We'll give Him the reverence He deserves. Better to do that now than to do that in the day of judgment. If we can help you in any way, whether that's to obey the gospel and to start your walk with Christ, or whether that's to offer prayer on your behalf, we're happy to do so if you'd come as we sing.